Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. We are very fortunate, in my tradition, I would say we are blessed to be joined tonight by my good friend, Senator Chris Coons. Given how much I have tried to do and failed to do in the Senate, humility is easy. <laughs> um, being humble is the oh, easy my, part. My, my, my. Forgiving, yep. accepting that I am forgiven, mm-hmm. and feeling like it's okay to keep trying and it's okay to keep at it. That's the hard part, and that's where faith comes in. Chris Coons was elected to the United States Senate from Delaware in 2010. In the Senate, he sits on the Appropriations, Judiciary, Foreign Relations, and ethics committees, among others, right? So all important posts which show how much his colleagues in the Senate on both sides of the aisle, I want to say, both sides of the aisle, appreciate his intellectual and political gifts. And I think because he's a good listener, he listens to people. Doesn't just all the time, as some do up there. Senator Coons earned his law degree from Yale Law School while simultaneously earning a master's degree in ethics from Yale Divinity School at the same time. Uh, uh, I enjoy a lot of relationships up there in the hill, but this one I particularly enjoy, this one I would call a friendship. And I'm blessed to have my friend here. I often kid my friend that he's, he was the only uh, theologian senator that I knew until Raphael Warnock won in 2020, the Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock. So, so, Chris Coons is prepared for a conversation like tonight. Uh, he's a public servant who knows what the phrase higher calling means. So we are blessed, I'll say it again, to have him here with us tonight. So thanks for coming to Georgetown. Thanks, Jim. Uh, wonderful to be with you. Um, thank you for hosting. Um, thank you for um, pressing uh, for me to make the space and time to be um, in this gorgeous library at this great center and with all of you this evening. Thank you. Uh, for your intention, engagement, and interest. And thanks for this next chapter in your leadership in our country for decades. Uh, I read Sojourners, and I listened to or watched or read um, Jim Wallace's work and was moved and challenged by it. Um, He has, for a very long time, been a critical voice in our nation about the intersection of values, faith, morality, and politics. And I didn't know there was such a voice when a friend first said to me, have you read Sojourners? Have you looked at this? Do you know this community? And it had a dramatic impact on me. So... Thank you for decades of leadership. And I'm thrilled at this new center that you're leading and at the McCourt School and at Georgetown for hosting not just this conversation, but for being a place close to the Capitol in the coming years uh, where conversations like this will hopefully be commonplace, not rare. Let's hope so. We're a tag team. We're going to be a tag team here tonight. So you grew up attending, I love this, Red Clay Creek Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Delaware, and were later ordained as an elder there. You've written that the church had an active congregation, a strong youth ministry, <clears throat> meaningful mission work, and preaching, solid preaching. Solid preaching. <laughs> Tell us more about preaching. your Presbyterian youth and how did it form <laughs> your conscience and what you care about and how you make meaning of things? Um, you're going to have to cut me off. Don't let me go on too long. <laughs> uh, but uh, I didn't really understand uh, the position of Presbyterianism within the Reform Christian tradition until I went to Div School. Uh, We had a really good Sunday school, but they didn't get into Calvinism and the roots of predestination and the specifics. What I knew was that we went to church every Sunday. Uh, My mom and dad were both active. My dad taught Sunday school. My mom volunteered with the women's group. There was a great uh, youth group that I participated in. 
I was indifferent, uh, difficult, acted up, didn't pay much attention. Um, but I absorbed through mm -hmm. action right. what my parents' faith meant to them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really process all this until I was a parent myself. Um, my mom, along with a dozen other moms in the congregation, welcomed a Vietnamese refugee family. I thought everybody grew up with a refugee family that you were really <laughs> close to. Um, this was at the end of the Vietnam War. There were thousands uh, who ended out uh, on the sea on right. uh, boats and rafts and were picked up by the U.S. Navy and were relocated as refugees. Um, and my mom never talked about this being, I'm putting my faith into action. She just got busy getting to work welcoming uh, the family of Vien Tran. They had an incredible story. Uh, Mr. Vien had served in the Army of South Vietnam, had been taken to a re-education camp when South Vietnam fell. His family went a thousand miles away to a refugee camp in Thailand. He ultimately escaped from the re-education camp and walked across Cambodia to Thailand, and they were reunited in a refugee camp. I've never met a harder working man. Hmm. Um, he had an elementary school education. All five of his children ended up going to college and graduate school, uh, being professionals and business owners and community leaders, and they were the same age as my older brother, younger brother, and me. We were right next to each other. That was mission work in the best sense that I didn't understand was motivated by my mother's faith. My father, uh, we had a visiting uh, pastor come one Sunday who was from the prison, uh, from the state prison, and he ran Bible studies and reflection groups with convicts, with folks who were in prison for the long haul. And he at one point said, is there anybody here, anybody who will volunteer to come to Smyrna with me and help these men in prison? And my dad's hand went, he's like, what the heck? <laughs> um, huh. And he surprised himself by volunteering. Huh. And he ended up going uh, to Smyrna prison and developing a close friendship uh, with someone named Paul, who really kept himself, who didn't participate, who wasn't active or engaged with the rest. Um, he'd murdered his father. Uh, his father was horrifically abusive to his mother. His father was an alcoholic who beat his mother um, right in front of him for years. And he kept saying to his father, when I get old enough, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to kill you. He killed his father, picked up the phone, called the police and said, come pick me up. I just killed my father. I'll never hurt anybody else, but I did this because he was hurting my mother. And when I was 12, 11 or 12, my father took me with him to Smyrna State Prison to go visit Paul. And I just thought this was normal. I thought everybody grew up going to prison and visiting prisoners with their dad. But then he started bringing Paul home to our house on furlough weekends. And only when I was a parent, did I reflect on the fact that with three young boys at home, my dad brought a convicted murderer into our home for weekends for us to go fishing and visit and talk with him. Years later when he was released, I had a chance to visit with Paul. And he said that the kindness and trust my father showed in him changed his life and changed the trajectory of his life. My father would be surprised that I'm talking about this today. He passed a couple years ago. Um, but that had an enormous impact on me, that he took that risk for someone he had no connection to. Um, and for both my parents, those actions were the ones that taught the most to me about defining who is your neighbor and, and broadening the circle of concern beyond folks you know, who maybe speak the same language as you or look like you or have the same background as you or have the same life trajectory as you. And that was because of the faith of our church. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeff Flake, who was a senator and is now an ambassador, was Mormon, is Mormon, was a Mormon missionary. And he and I ended up in Southern Africa at the same time. I worked for the South Africa Council of Churches. He was doing his Mormon mission. And when he and I went back to Southern Africa as senators, I said to him once, on, we were on a long flight. I said, Jeff, I've never understood this. How could you 
from Arizona, get on a plane, go to Zimbabwe, go to a hut of someone you've never met, speak in a language you don't know, and go, hi, I want to talk about Jesus. And he looks at me, and he says, so what is it your people do? And I said, Presbyterians run around the world building hospitals and schools and visiting prisoners and helping refugees, but we don't ever talk about Jesus, because, you know, (laughs) that would be a lot. And he looked me right in the eyes, and he said, if you believe that salvation is possible through a belief in Jesus, and that's the most important thing you could share with someone ever. It's the greatest gift you could ever give anyone. If you believe that, why would you never talk about it? And I still don't have an answer for him. Mm-hmm. And each of us have been challenging the other in the years since, him to be maybe a little more action and a little less witness, and me to be a little more witness and a little less action. Um, but that was the foundation of a, of a relationship, of a friendship of trust. Yeah with someone who's a genuine conservative Mm -hmm. that led to some really important work that we did together. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a long-winded explanation of the impact of my childhood church, but I hope it illuminated a little bit. So your parents were active church people, but as you just said, they really took Jesus' words in Matthew 25, a text that you and I have often talked about, where he instructed us to care for the sick, the stranger, the prisoner, and the hungry. So they actually did this, and you watched them do it. Yes. Uh, my mother went and served lunch at Emanuel Dining Room to folks who were homeless. Um, and, and never, there was no, they were joyful. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never a sense of, you know, look at me, look at what I'm doing. They were quiet. They were largely anonymous. When I said my father would be surprised I'm talking about this, I, I don't think he would want me making a big deal. He didn't think it was a big deal. He thought he was just normal. doing what you're, That's supposed, what Christians just doing do. what yeah. you're supposed to do and yeah. like not make some big right. deal about it right. and run around going, look at me, look at me, I'm making a difference. Uh, my wife spends three or four days a week um, caring, vaccinating in prison, caring for sex workers, helping folks who are um, fentanyl drug addicts. And uh, she spent Sunday um, at Adams 4, which is a really tough corner in downtown Wilmington. So tough, I was like, I'm really nervous about your safety. She's like, oh, stop it. <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, that kind of quiet, humble service challenges me because I'm in a career where yeah. hanging a lantern on what you do mm-hmm. is given higher priority than right. what you actually get right. done. So um, that's a legacy. You've got a legacy from your mom and your dad that you carried on. Legacy is an important word uh, for us all here. So I was intrigued. Both of us have been in South Africa, yeah. uh, impacted our lives deeply. You met people like Desmond Tutu. Uh, what did you learn from African Christians when you were there and uh, people like Archbishop Desmond Tutu? Oh. So, um, as Jeff remembers well, maybe, I spent a semester in Kenya uh, my junior year in college. Yeah. And it transformed my view of yeah. life, the world, America's place in the world. Yeah. Um, and I lived with several different families. Their radical hospitality, the extent to which they were just unbelievably kind, welcoming, uh, faithful. We prayed over everything. We prayed over breakfast. We prayed over lunch. We prayed that the bus would come on time. We prayed that the chicken would have an egg. I mean, we prayed for everything. I'd never been in households where we prayed like 10 times a day for everything. And the longer I spent with that main family I lived with in Nairobi, the more I, I got it. Um, and it genuinely challenged a lot of my ideas mm-hmm. about exceptionalism, about the West, about mm-hmm. um, yep. some of my political right. views. <laughs> um, and frankly, South Africa was even more transformational. Yep. I was there at the height of the um, anti-apartheid movement when mm. the regime 
had imposed a state of emergency. Uh, I was supposed to stay with a Presbyterian pastor in Cape Town, and I showed up at her house, and the secret police had dragged her out uh, midnight in front of her kids screaming the night before. And I met with her very traumatized husband, and I ended up having to stay uh, with a pastor who took me in. I am still friends today um, with Bishop Paul Varane, um, who I lived with in South Africa at the time, uh, who's lived in Soweto for decades, who's as much of a thorn in the side of the ANC government as he was of the apartheid regime, Um, but was an unbelievable example to me um, of risking everything in the service of justice. So let's go back to the the political thing. You you said you had a a conversion, in a sense, uh, a political one, not a religious one, from Republican to Democrat after your experience in Africa. What was it that led to your political conversion in Africa? Uh, It's a long conversation. I'll just try and be brief. Um, That, um, so trying to defend um, what was then the Reagan administration's policy towards South Africa in debates with students at the University of Nairobi was really hard. Constructive engagement. I couldn't explain or defend America's position. And that began a much longer journey um, I had a college debate partner who's now Father Thomas Sorrow at Fordham, who's a mm-hmm. Jesuit theologian. Um, and he was doing a mission year in Jamaica when I was in Kenya. Oh. And he picked me up at JFK when I landed, drove me to the South Bronx. We got out, walked around, and he said, explain this. You tell me how your Reagan Republican view of opportunity in America, like, you, you tell me how this is just and how this is the logical result mm-hmm. of a good and kind system. And we, we had an argument that lasted most of a year. Um, but I had the blessing of a lot of good friends, Jeff Erbach among them, who kept gently, persistently prodding, poking. I had two friends on my freshman dorm who are today rabbis and who were so gracious and put up with a lot of nonsense for me. And instead of shutting me down or canceling me, like drew me out and said, well, why do you, why do you think that? Well, how does that make you feel? Well, why, I've often wondered if Ted Cruz had two folks on his hall as good as Barry and Hera, who had worked with him. And instead, of, instead of just being like, you know, you're wrong and judging yeah, him. Yeah. I, I'm sorry to make fun of Senator Cruz. But I went to college as confident in my conservatism and republicanism mm-hmm. as I suspect Senator Cruz did. And I was greeted by people who gave me the room to actually debate with them and discuss what are my views, not what did I absorb from popular media, what did I think was the right thing, what did I pick up from my friends in high school, but what did I actually believe? Bread for the World was an organization uh, that had a real impact on me as a young man. Amnesty International had a real impact on me as a young man. So did a dozen other organizations I had a chance to work with, the Coalition for the Homeless, the I Have a Dream Foundation. I met good people of a wide range of backgrounds who were trying to make a difference in the world, and the common thread across many of them was faith was a sense of Mm. our place in the world Mm -hmm. and a sense that everybody has some spark of the divine in them and is worthy of a common respect. So what you saw people doing, what you saw them living, and what was underneath all of that Mm. was very powerful Mm. in your life. And that led to, it sounds like there was a moral conversion going on, and it led, in your case, also to a political conversion because people listened to you and talked to you and didn't just point fingers at you. I'd say that was a piece of it, was the generosity and kindness of spirit, undeserved, um, that I experienced. Um, And then a growing sense of, um, shame's probably a strong word, but in a Catholic institution, why not? Uh, (laughs) 
a, a growing sense of shame at ways in which I had mistreated others or been uh-huh. obnoxious or yep. been aggressive yep. or been inconsiderate. Yeah. Or, it took a couple of years for that to really grow yeah. on me. Right. But I, I became clearer that um, humility, generosity, patience, um, grace um, were higher values than yeah. aggression. Um, right. Right. Accumulation, um, self-aggrandizement. I've, as you know, I've always been intrigued by your uh, Yale Law School and Yale <laughs> Duke School uh, at the same time. Uh, uh, and you said that uh, most of your friends in law school were quite progressive. Yeah. Uh, and they did not take kindly to your decision to enroll in the Divinity School. In fact, I've heard some disowned you. Uh, you had roommates move out. Uh, Others stopped talking to you. What was behind these reactions, and how how has the progressive movement, uh, in your experience, become more or less hostile to religion since then? And that was a that was a painful chapter. Um, so yeah. I'll be brief. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, uh, I discovered a group of uh, friends in law school who were people I didn't weren't part of my sort of. I spent a lot of time in the homelessness and housing clinic in law school ah, okay. um, and became close friends with a great group of tough, bright, aggressive, mm-hmm. progressive litigators yep. who were fighting hard for people's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also fell in with a, a, pair, a prayer group of about a dozen uh, law students who came from a wide range of religious backgrounds, but were trying to figure out um, the role of faith in their lives. And um, we met regularly and we'd spend an hour or two praying together as a group. And uh, roommates of mine and friends of mine, classmates of mine, thought that was just weird mm-hmm. um, and were increasingly hostile and, and, uh, and negative about. Mm-hmm. As I was, I got quite active in my church and mm-hmm. I was uh, working at a homeless shelter in New Haven and um, I felt a very strong calling to understand and explore my faith. And mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of other things I could have confessed to my close circle of friends and they would have been like, oh, that's great. But saying that I was actually a Christian, that I actually believed in Jesus Christ, that I actually read scripture, that was too much for, mm-hmm. for quite a few of them. And that, mm-hmm. that was a very painful period for me. We have this uh, seminar, seminary program in the summer intensive week. I call it the Underground Seminary. It brings seminarians here. And we had a session up on the hill. Nancy Pelosi was there, who was in that seat last time we did, did this. You were there. And I remember the students asked, uh, why don't you... Democrats talk more about faith. Uh, you're doing it here because we're with you, but why don't you talk more about faith in public? Because sometimes people think only Republicans are the religious ones because you all don't talk about faith. And you had a great answer to their question. And you talked about why, in fact, it's important to talk about what motivates you, yeah. what, what undergirds you, what's behind it, yeah. and not just do it, but say why. Um, an important thing for us to recognize in any conversation mm-hmm. is that there is a significant amount of trauma in our society um, over um, both organized religion and how it has fallen short or failed uh, or even victimized um, mm-hmm. some people in our society. Um, and um, the assumptions or projections that some put on when you say, mm-hmm. I'm a person of faith. Sure. There's some two-dimensional cartoonish characterizations that folks then project on you and say, oh, well, then that means you believe this or this or this because they've literally never met a progressive Christian. They don't know that that exists, Um, A. B, um, for about 30, 40 years now, um, Republicans have done more publicly saying, 
You know, we right. own the Bible, we own faith, this is, mm -hmm. this is ours. Right. And the era when the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the environmental movement, which had foundations in faith, mm -hmm. um, were perceived that way or widely known, that has in some ways faded. Um, I'll never forget campaigning with Sherrod. Um, Senator Brown hosts a prayer group in his hideaway um, that's put on by faith and politics, and that's right. probably something he wouldn't want me to talk about very much. Um, but I'm campaigning with him in Ohio. I'm, I'm a big Sherrod Brown fan. I think he's a great human being. And he went, how about a round of applause for Sherrod? <laughs> um, and, and it's really clear if you spend any time with him that his progressive values are like yeah. deeply rooted in his faith. Yeah. But he, so I introduced him. We were at three events together in the Youngstown area. And I introduced him clearly to a room full of 150, 200 people who were his supporters and had known him for years. And I talked about how I sort of knew him as a colleague. But once I was in this weekly prayer group meeting in his hideaway is when I really got to know him. Half the people in the room go. And so the second time I do the introduction, I give a little more explanation about how progressive it is, how welcoming it is, how there's a Buddhist, how there's, a, you know, right? And that um, we do breathing exercises and there's readings. And, um, but I go through it and I say, you know, this is a senator you need to know acts based on his convictions and his heart. And it's a big heart and they're deep convictions. And the third speech, he's the one who started uh -huh. um, by yeah. saying, you know, before Chris says this, I, I have a confession for all of you. I have a prayer group that meets in my, in my hideaway. It is hard for us to talk about yeah. because we've, every one of us have gotten blowback or criticism or negative responses um, from folks who feel sure. that someone who is elected Mm -hmm. needs to be clear mm -hmm. that it is their intention, their desire, their commitment to be as supportive and welcoming of those who are humanists, who have no faith, who are opposed to organized religion, as we are to co-religionists, as we are to those of other faiths. And so I try to simultaneously, particularly when I'm home in Delaware, make it clear to folks that I think you need to know where I'm coming from and what informs my core values, but I recognize I'm flawed and not in any way perfect, and this is just giving you a sense of my frame of reference, but it is my job as a senator to be available to and advocate for and embrace people who come at public life from a wide range of faith views or those who right. are um, humanists or who come at it from an ethical perspective because that's what religious freedom means in our society. And given what religion does or doesn't do, people reasonably conclude the answer to bad faith is no faith at all. Correct. And we're saying, uh, my classes, this comes up all the time, the answer to bad faith, bad, the answer to bad religion, let's call it that, is good faith, bad, better faith. So how do we have that conversation that you've been having for a long time? You mentioned the word calling uh, that begin to arise during all this time. So how did your, your calling, growing sense of calling, your faith influence your decision after law school, to go into public service and eventually run uh, for the Senate? Did, did you pray over it? Did you have spiritual advisors? How did your calling present itself? Um, so I, again, too long a story for the amount of time we have, perhaps. Um, it, it's almost like I was avoiding. Uh, I have a, a stepmother who told me uh, twice that she was praying that I would lose an election <laughs> so that I would accept my calling to the pulpit uh, because I wasn't fulfilling my call to ministry I in see. my current role. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a, a very wide uh, range of friends, including you, of course, that have prodded or pushed or challenged or called me in different ways um, to, to discern what it is I'm meant to do. 
I spent a, a number of years um, preaching supply, which for Presbyterians means when there's a pastor who's on vacation or who has a family emergency or something, you just go preach. And mm -hmm. I've preached probably half the churches in Delaware in my denomination and hmm. a half dozen others. Wow. Um, I love preaching. I find it the most, <laughs> it is the most um, spiritually challenging and rewarding experience I've had in life, mm -hmm. other than being a parent. Um, and I've performed a dozen weddings and I do weddings only with a couple that will meet with me for at least 10 to 12 hours and go through four formation mm -hmm. sessions and then we work on a service. But, and I thought seriously about taking um, a pulpit ministry and, and going ordination track. Um, but I'll also, in my denomination, you have to be able to read the Torah in Hebrew and you have to be able to read the New Testament in Greek and pass six hour exams in both. And I was at a point in div school um, and law school where I was working in a homeless shelter and engaged in a homeless ministry as a student pastor. And I looked at how much more study that involved and I just didn't have the passion for it. And it was also really hard. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you're just not serious enough. You're just not serious enough to belong in the pulpit. Um, and I had some bad experiences where I was overextended and trying to do too much. Mm -hmm. And I delivered a sermon that was really not, not my best, not good. And I had an experience uh, counseling someone that really wasn't. And I, I realized that I either needed to fully commit my whole heart and whole self to nothing but pulpit ministry, or if I was going to continue in community service and politics and business, I, I needed to be comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was like this. Yeah. Um, took a couple years. At the end of the day, my life path was only set um, when I had a chance to meet and marry my now wife. Um, and literally the day I met her, my mother said to me, how come you don't bring home any nice girls? I'm 30 at this point. I'm working in New York. I'm working for the I Have a Dream Foundation. And I'm running an AmeriCorps, a national AmeriCorps program. And for those of you who have mothers who say things like this, she literally says to me, how come you don't bring home any nice girls? I said, oh, mother, stop. Leave me alone. It's just, just get off my case. Is that right? She says, well, what about this thing you're doing today, this AmeriCorps thing, this conference? I said, oh, I won't possibly meet anybody. It's just stop it. She goes, as God is my witness, he will put before you today a girl of your dreams if you will but humble yourself and pray to him. I was like, <laughs> oh, stop it. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Spent the whole drive down to the conference going, I met my wife that day. Mm -hmm. So your mothers are right. <laughs> um, and my wife is an incredible partner. I would say, though, also that ministry shouldn't be defined by a clerical role. And I some agree. would say, I would say... <clears throat> that your work in the Senate is all that it is about politics and representing people. But, it, but the way you do it is also your own kind of ministry. You can have a ministry even in Congress or in the Senate. I, I've seen you do, do that. <clears throat> so you know my, that. my favorite professor in Div School was Sister Margaret Farley. Uh, oh, I was yeah. an ethicist, a, a mm -hmm. very well-regarded ethicist. Yeah. And when I had a chance to go back and talk to her about my current role, I told her I'm not really serving in the Senate. Um, that I'm engaging in an extended field practicum and that I look forward to going back and someday writing with her <laughs> all the case studies that I've been involved in and exposed to. So. Well, in the Senate, though, you've had, you said religion has played a positive role, and one way it has is weekly bipartisan prayer breakfast. Senators have a prayer breakfast. And I know sometimes <laughs> that means even very early trained from Delaware to make the prayer breakfast. And you said this, it's awfully hard to throw a punch at someone, at least rhetorically, rhetorically yes. on the floor of the Senate. 
when you have held hands with them in prayer in the morning. So tell us how that experience of praying with senators with whom you disagree, some of whom would now, are now helping to lead a white Christian nationalist movement that requires not reconciliation but you know, resistance. When it's time to save our democracy, how does praying with Republicans help? Um, we talked earlier about my relationship with James, uh, with Senator Lankford of Oklahoma. Uh, James and I were co-chairs of the weekly prayer breakfast for one Congress. Um, on the night of January 6th, which I'll never forget, uh, James was the last senator to rise in opposition and to uh, begin debate on a motion um, when the mm. um, uh, Capitol Police one. came through and uh, pulled us all out because the rioters were right outside the door. Right. And um, I, was, I was glaring at James with just unalloyed uh, anger as he was making that motion. And uh, after we got, we were evacuated to another place, uh, and I got on the phone with Schumer about what are we doing in Path Forward. He said, you need to go talk to. Uh, and I went and had a long heart-to-heart with several of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, it made a difference. In some mm-hmm. cases, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but he and I had a long uh, sit-down about two in the morning after it was all over. When we finally got back into the chamber, he was the first senator to stand up and say, given the events of the evening, I withdraw my motion. Hmm. And um, hmm. I've been to Tulsa, Oklahoma, as his guest for the centennial of the race massacre. He's been to Wilmington as my guest to speak at our prayer breakfast in Delaware. Um, we have learned to respect each other and to care about each other's families and to make the Senate a more mm-hmm. livable place right. by our relationship right. to each other, even though he has political views and positions that he and I disagree on a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a running joke that we walk in Monday morning and go like this, no matter what they, like <laughs> we vote like that. And then I'm like, so how's your mom? You know, I mean, and, um, there are some senators with whom I genuinely struggle to find any grounds mm-hmm. uh, for reconciliation. But if you're willing to come and sit down and uh, participate in prayer and hymns and stuff, and the deal is every one of us stands up at some point and spends 20 minutes talking to the small group, a dozen, sometimes 20. Um, senators are very open in mm-hmm. this setting. We don't repeat what is said. Yeah. It is the only time where there's no press, there's no staff, mm-hmm. there's no lobbyists, huh. there's no, it's just us in a room. And the ones who aren't interested in a relationship don't come back. And the ones who are there mm. eventually have become some of my best friends in the Senate. Johnny uh-huh. Isaacson, I got to know through the prayer mm-hmm. And there's also folks who stand up and talk and share things about their life and their values and their childhood. Orrin Hatch, Mike Lee, mm-hmm. John Barrasso, who I never would have gotten to know. Mm-hmm. But for getting myself on a 5.30 a.m. train, yeah. coming up, coming down from Delaware, and being there listening to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I spoke at the prayer breakfast, I spoke about my father's ministry with Paul, um, who escaped from our house, and what it was like going through the experience of seeing Paul as a friend, as someone who I liked, and then seeing the police and our neighbors and the community outraged that we had been harboring this murderer and that tension and the risks my father took. And at the end of my speaking, a senator, a Republican, comes up with tears in his eyes and asks me to forgive him. Mm. Mm. And I said, why? Mm. And he said, because I didn't know anything about you. I just Mm. knew what I heard from Rush Limbaugh. And I (laughs) thought you were a bearded Marxist. And I was praying for your defeat in the election. And now that I've heard you, I realize you're a good person. 
If you're willing to be open to each other with almost all of my colleagues, mm-hmm. you can find a way to relationship and towards working together. So relationship and common faith can break through some of the political barriers. Almost every senator I, I know wants to get things done. Mm-hmm. And there's a big challenge with getting things done today because of the lack of trust. And the lack of trust is largely because we spend no time together. Right. We fly right. in Monday night. We fly right. out Thursday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And our families don't get to know each other. And we don't spend any time the mm-hmm. way, I mean, 50 years ago, senators all lived here. They raised mm-hmm. their kids together. Right. Um, this is one of the places. Traveling together overseas, working out in the gym, and this prayer breakfast are the three places where mm. I actually am able to get time mm. together with spouses or individually or in a place that you're vulnerable and willing to be human. Yeah. Spaces that we often don't have. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you had a moment, though, a tough prayer breakfast moment. You were, uh, you're the co-chair and former President Donald Trump is speaking that day at the prayer breakfast. Oh, yeah. And you had to decide what to say before his remarks. Uh, take us through that very tough moment, how you decide what to say. Uh, and it was shortly after he instituted his ban on immigrants coming from Muslim countries. How do you deal with a moment like that? So um, Max Finberg is a dear friend of mine, a Howard Divinity School graduate mm-hmm. and just a great guy and a, a hunger warrior who's done a lot of good. Friend of mine too. Yep. Yeah. And um, Tim Kaine, uh, my dear friend, Tim Kaine, uh, when he went off to run for vice president, you know, he came to visit caucus, see you guys, you know. And I said as he was walking out the door, hey, if there's anything I can ever do. Right. So he calls me from the car. He's down in Florida campaigning. It's like two weeks before the election. He goes, Chris, Chris, uh, I'm the co-chair of the prayer breakfast. And I said, yeah. He goes, I don't have the time to deal with it. And I need you to take that over. <laughs> and I literally said, oh, Hillary's going to give a great speech at the prayer breakfast. Don't worry about it. This will be great. <laughs> the election happened. A week later, I called him like, hey, um, by the way, <laughs> tag. He goes, oh, no. Oh, no. You said you'd do it. So it's three weeks after the election, and John Bozeman and I go to Trump Tower. That's a long story. Yeah, I bet. And that was my first in-person experience um, with our former president and his spiritual advisors. Um, and it, it, you know, so... Wow. Um, so uh, I told you earlier about my mother's role in welcoming a refugee family. Um, well, my mother is one wonderful, persistent, forceful personality. And she had read in the Delaware paper that Delaware had not welcomed a single Syrian refugee family. So she called me up. She said, what are you doing about this? So our governor, uh, Jack Markell, and Jewish Family Services and my home church, Red Clay Creek Presbyterian, and Masjid al-Ibrahim, uh, our largest mosque, uh, partnered um, to provide um, a welcome to a Syrian refugee family. And um, they'd, they'd, they'd met in a refugee camp. Um, they were from the neighborhood that had been hit by poison gas. And there'd been this long, right, and they finally got clearance. They'd finally had plane tickets. They had a baby girl, and they were about to come to the United States. Hmm. And he issued that Muslim ban. And um, so I know that I'm going to be on the stage with, the, oh, this is, yeah. Uh, uh, two days before, three days before the prayer breakfast, Mike Pence shows up in my office, Vice President Pence. And he says, uh, Senator, uh, President Trump would like uh, to travel with you. And I said, what? 
Um, and he said, uh, we've had our first combat death uh, of this administration, mm. and the remains will be received at Dover Air Force Base. And as yeah, you know, right. mm-hmm. this is, a, and I went, oh, of course. All right, absolutely, sir. I will do that. I will do that. So I had just had the experience of standing at the flight line alongside our president as uh, a flag-draped coffin came out the back of a C-17. And there is nothing to prepare you for the sound a widow makes and a daughter makes when they first confront the reality that their loved ones died in combat and has been returned mm-hmm. in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, an experience that yeah. I had just had with the president. Huh. And I was um, conscious, as I had hoped he was, of the, the weight of the office. I had seen President Obama also go through that experience at Dover Air Force Base, where you first feel it's your job as president or as the home state senator to go visit with a family that is really grieving and really upset and, and often very difficult. So I had just had that experience. I'm, I'm seated at the front. The president's right over there. I am upset about the Muslim ban. Uh, the king of Jordan, lineal descendant of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, keeper of the holy sites, was seated there in the audience, had come despite this, and had had difficulty getting into our country because of it. Hmm. So there's a break in the program, and I get up, and I walk over, and I say to the president, Mr. President, and he looks up, and I said, I'm Senator Coons of Delaware. Yes, yes, I remember. And I said, I, I need to talk to you privately for a moment, sir. So let me, I'll save you the details. I just said that it was important to me as a matter of my faith to share with him that I disagreed with the Muslim ban, and I thought it was the wrong thing to do. And I thought it put us at risk of distance from close and trusted partners, that it violated the very spirit of the prayer breakfast, which was to welcome people, mm-hmm. not as a celebration of Christianity, right. but as a celebration right. of prayer and mm-hmm. of the message mm-hmm. of Jesus, right. recognized by a wide range of faiths as a prophet or a wise man or an important figure, um, and that I urged him to reconsider, and he um, disagreed. Um, and I then said, uh, Mr. President, uh, I feel called to pray for you today if I could. Um, this is not a poli- any, you know, sort of, and I said, this, I'm not making any political statement. I just feel like I need to pray for our nation. Um, he said, fine, whatever. And so at the, after he spoke, um, I stood up and briefly talked about my father and my father's prison ministry and how he was willing to take a risk that lots of folks in our community thought was unwise. And I asked President Trump if he'd stand up and Senator Bozeman and I, Senator Bozeman and I put our hands on his shoulder and simply prayed for his wisdom that he could be a good leader for our nation and that he would open his heart to others. My father died that night. I never got to speak with him again, but I cannot imagine a better witness. And when I um, faced some sharp criticism for how could you do that, this was very early in President Trump's presidency. Mm -hmm. I said to a number of folks, what part of pray for your enemies did you not understand? That's a moment where faith has to take shape and take heart in your heart at the moment. And you reached out to him. And I owe that all to Max because I didn't think of that. (laughs) That was Max Finberg saying, trust in the power of prayer when you have no other answer. Yeah. With your busy schedule, you've got to run off tonight afterwards or sign something else. An important job. How do you stay spiritually centered, as they say? <laughs> You're presuming uh, I'm spiritually centered. <laughs> uh, well, well I, I'm presuming that you want to be and try yes. to be. In the middle of all that, how do you—I um, uh, know it's important to you because you've written about this. 
How do you stay humble in a place here in Washington, D.C., where humility is not always seen as a virtue? And you and I both know the Micah 6, 8 text. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Amen. Um, yeah, Trinity and I were talking about that exact verse in the car on the way over. Mm-hmm. Um, I read scripture every morning. Um, I try. I do my best. It's almost every morning. Um, I have a great um, congregation in Wilmington, First and Central Presbyterian, um, that I now go to. Um, Red Clay's quite a distance from my home, and it's a, it's a progressive, welcoming um, church that has a real focus on mission um, and where all members of my family are welcome. Um, and um, I just, I try to, I try to find um, some brief moments of calm here and there uh, in the din, in the craziness mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, um, one of the challenges of um, the job I'm in, and I, I talk about this with other senators, um, if you're a contributor, if you're a chairman of a committee, if you're writing mm-hmm. legislation, if you're, it is very easy to feel like um, you and you alone are the person who can solve mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. right. right. Um, because I'm chairman of the subcommittee that funds all foreign aid, um, many in my caucus look to me to deliver on the $9 billion humanitarian aid request the president has sent up and to be the one making the arguments. And thus, the sense I occasionally have that if I fail, Mm -hmm. if this doesn't happen, if literally millions of children starve as a result, it's all my fault. Mm -hmm. So given how much I have tried to do and failed to do in the Senate, Humility is easy. Um, being humble is the oh easy my, part. My, my, my. Forgiving, yeah. accepting that I am forgiven, mm-hmm. and feeling like it's okay to keep trying and it's okay to keep at it. That's the hard part, and that's where faith comes in yeah. for me personally. We have heard a political leader tonight who tries every day to answer to a higher calling. Let's show our appreciation for that. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.